I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This morning we're going to be beginning our study of the passion of Jesus in the final three chapters of Matthew. This morning looking at the passion begins in Matthew 26 verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 26 verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What we'll see together, the central truth of this text that we'll consider together this morning is that a life spent worshiping Jesus is a beautiful thing. A life spent worshiping Jesus is a beautiful thing. When we get to Matthew 26, Jesus has just finished two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's a time really where he's taken his disciples aside and had somewhat of a private tutoring session with them preparing them for when he would be gone. Now, Matthew's gospel has five major blocks of teaching, what we sometimes call discourses, starting, of course, famously with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then ending in Matthew 24 and 25 with the Olivet Discourse. Now, each of these five discourses, each of these five teaching sections ends with a formula in transitioning to the next section of Matthew. And this formula is, and it happened. So when we find here in Matthew 26, verse 1, that Jesus, uh, these, the next words are literally, and it happened, that Jesus had finished these things. These words, and it happened, are, are a formula that, that Matthew uses to tell us Jesus' teaching is done. Now Jesus immediately launches into the fourth and final time that he predicts his death. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this is the fourth time that Jesus has taught his disciples this truth. So we can hardly say that Jesus has not gone to great lengths to prepare his disciples for the moment of his death. At the same time, what we see over and over again is that though Jesus has gone to great lengths to prepare them, the disciples are woefully unprepared for what's about to come. And one of the great ironies of history, the judge of all creation is about to be judged. And this moment marks the formal beginning of the passion of the Christ in the final three chapters of Matthew. In the first of three stages that we see here, stage one is the plot. Plot in verses one through five. 
So Passover begins Thursday afternoon with the slaughter of the Passover lamb. Now Jesus and his disciples will soon celebrate their own Passover together. But he first spends time preparing them for what's to come. Now, the disciples don't ever truly get it. They don't ever truly understand what Jesus is doing before he dies. But it's this time before the crucifixion that prepares them to be able to look back and understand. So as they look back, they begin to understand. But in this moment, they don't yet. It's been said that hindsight is 2020, and that's the way it works out for the disciples. You see, as we look back through redemptive history to the Exodus in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, the slaughter of that lamb, led to freedom and redemption for God's people Israel. The slaughter of this lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will lead to freedom and redemption for people of all nations. Now, the way Jesus makes his prediction is significant. The Son of Man, he says, will be delivered over to be crucified. In other words, he's very aware of the fact that the Jews are planning to kill him. He's aware of the fact that they're plotting. This is no doubt not the first plot that they've had. But the Jews also are bound by law. Not They, they can't commit crucifixion. They can't execute by crucifixion. So the ones in the first century, the only ones permitted to do this are the Romans. So this prediction allows for Jesus' capture by the Jews and execution at the hands of Rome. Jesus is the central figure in the Gospels, and his main adversaries are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 3 introduces us to a group of these people, again, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. Well, this word, the chief priests, it's it's a reference to high-ranking temple officials and and members of their families. These are sort of the, the clergy, the pastoral leaders in Jerusalem. The elders of the people, on the other hand, are lay leaders in the temple and the synagogues. They're sort of like uh, deacons or, or unpaid leaders in the church. So all the official, unofficial, paid and unpaid leaders, the most important influential leaders in the church at Jerusalem, are gathered, literally synagogued together in Caiaphas's house. And there's one item on the meeting agenda in verse 4. They plotted in order to arrest Jesus and kill him. Now, history tells us that Caiaphas was high priest in Israel from AD 18 to 36. So Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. And Matthew has talked about high priests as a group. But here he uh, singles out the official ranking member of these religious leaders. So it's as if there's a secret meeting at a church leader's home with, with all the deacons and staff to figure out how to kill the famous preacher is just as dark as it sounds. And to make it clear, verse 5 adds that they're trying to find the best time to get away with this crime. They say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, Jesus has many enemies in Jerusalem, as evidenced by the fact that there are people gathered here trying to kill him. They're planning to kill him. But this is a tricky time. Jesus is in Jerusalem, but so are a lot of other people. There are many pilgrims from other regions throughout Palestine and even beyond who have come for the Passover. Many of these travelers are from Jesus' home area of Galilee. So he'll have some allies in the city. Scholars estimate that during Passover, uh, the population of Jerusalem grows to five times what it would be on, on a typical day. There are tons and tons of visitors here. So they know this has to be handled with care. 
So we have this plot. And then in verses 6 through 13, we have worship. Worship. A beautiful moment of worship. There's this story with an unnamed woman in verses 6 through 13, and it's really the heart of this section. Uh, the way this passage is constructed, you have the plot, this moment of worship, followed by Judas's plan to betray Christ. And, and it's this gem in the middle that reveals to us this, this beautiful moment. Jesus is anointed at least a couple of different times in his ministry. Luke tells us a separate story about a notoriously sinful, immoral woman who comes to Jesus and washes his feet with her tears and her hair and anoints him. Matthew, Mark, and John all record this anointing, the one that Matthew records here. And Matthew gives us the fewest details. John tells us the most about what happens here. And it's John that tells us that this is Mary who's anointing Jesus' head, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, the way this works, Jerusalem, remember, is packed with people. So Jesus spends the day in Jerusalem, and then at night he goes out to this nearby town of Bethany. Jerusalem is extremely crowded, no doubt maxed out in terms of uh, capacity, housing capacity, inns or, or uh, way, way houses, anything like that. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem each day and then stays outside of town. It's about two miles outside of town in Bethany. It takes less than an hour to walk back and forth. And so it's a relatively convenient place to stay at a time like this. Now we know that when Jesus goes to Bethany, he typically stays with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. But Matthew tells us this meeting takes place at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know a lot about Simon the leper, and, and there are different theories. Uh, this perhaps was a house that a leper used to live in that now uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, their family own, or, or maybe uh, that is their father. That Simon, their, their father, was a leper uh, who, was, who was healed, potentially by Jesus, or it could be a, another local house of someone, someone that had been healed. But what, whatever we know is that at some point, this house belonged to a leper, but a leper couldn't live here currently or no one else could be there because they couldn't be uh, around leprosy. So it's mealtime. And in verse seven, we see Jesus reclined at the table. John tells us that Martha, as we know, Martha's a servant, busy about serving and she's serving the meal. And Lazarus is at the table with Jesus eating the meal. Well, as travelers in the first century walk back and forth between Jerusalem and this town, they no doubt get hot and dusty. Uh, they're walking through roads, also occupied uh, by, by animals. So as the donkeys, oxen, oxen, sheep are traveling along, no doubt they're depositing gifts in the roadway. And so by the time people arrive and, and they fill a room like this for a meal, it's no doubt ripe with odors, dirt. It, it, it's, it's a very uh, sensual in the sense of your senses moment. And so into this room comes Mary with a valuable gift. Matthew tells us this is an alabaster flask of expensive ointment. He doesn't name the ointment, but Mark and John do. They tell us it's spikenard, which is uh, an expensive import from India. Now, the fact that Mary anoints Jesus isn't shocking. It's a fairly common courtesy for guests coming in off the road. Uh, maybe they're hot, sweaty, dirty, smelly, and, and there's this, it's a fairly common uh, ritual. But it's the extravagance of this anointing. It's the lavish expense of the oil that makes this remarkable. John 12 verse 3 tells us that this flask of oil is worth about one year's salary, which puts it in the range of a $50,000 gift. Something remarkable to just dump out on someone's head. Mary has an opportunity here to set Jesus apart from the other guests in the room. 
And so she does it with the most precious gift she owns. Now, you may know that the word Messiah means literally the anointed one. And so what she does here is not just an act for a guest, but it's it's symbolically important. It's likely that this is her act of devotion. It's her declaration that Jesus is the anointed one, the anointed king. Naturally, the disciples are deeply touched by this gesture. Not really. I mean, look at verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. I mean, supposedly they're living their life of devotion to Christ. And then this woman walks in and, and they reject her gift. Now, John tells us, John's gospel tells us that there, so there's another factor at work here, some specific color. John 12, verse 4, Judas Iscariot is the one who speaks up. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, John says, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So it'd be very much to his advantage to have a valuable gift placed in the disciples' treasury that he could help himself to. Now, as we walk through Jesus' relationship with the disciples, we often see Peter speaking up. But this time is Judas. Now, Judas has lingered in the background for most of Matthew. But he becomes a central figure here in chapter 26. So let's think about the group that is with Jesus here. There's one humble worshiper. Mary sees Jesus for who he is. We have 11 well-intentioned disciples. They seem to have good intent. And we have one scheming person who seeks to take what is a good deed, a good situation, and twist it for his own purposes. Well, is it a good thing to give money to poor people? Of course. In fact, uh, just at the, the close of Matthew 25, Jesus' last teaching with his disciples, he've told, he's told them how important this is. So there's some self-righteous emotion here on the part of the disciples. Judas appeals to their emotion. This could have been given to the poor. Now, we'll get to Jesus' response in a minute, but but what, what can we learn from this pattern here? Well, like the disciples, who are very indignant and very confident in their response, don't we tend to be confident in our own opinions? Have a high degree of certainty about sometimes what's not actually certain? So what we have here is one person with bad motives energizing a conversation. But the majority of people here actually want something good. Yet in their certainty, in their indignance, they miss the best thing, or as Jesus puts it, the beautiful thing. And they lend their weight to this point of conflict. Now there are so many things that we can take away from this. Certainty about a situation at work and the way it's being handled. Something at church, and we don't like the way that's going down. Kids judging parents for their decisions. But let's think just for a moment about the moment in time that we are in with the coronavirus. Now, we have many well-intentioned people in government, in schools, in businesses, in churches, simply seeking the best way of walking through an incredibly complex, tricky situation. There are people convinced that the failure to reopen more quickly is 
hurting our economy. While there's some truth in this, there are other factors in play. There are other people equally convinced that reopening too quickly is killing more people, and there are also elements of truth in this. And then, in the midst of all this, there are some people seeking to take advantage of this moment and create strife in a difficult time. So how as Christians do we work through this? With humility and faith. With humility recognizing we don't have all the answers. God does, but he hasn't whispered them to us personally. And so we trust but we trust God's leading, but we also interact hopefully with, with charitable generosity toward other people. We ask God for wisdom. We make the best decision that we can. But we seek to interact with others in a loving, gracious way. Giving the benefit of the doubt. Well, how does Jesus respond in this moment? He demonstrates that the chief value in any situation is the glory of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus. In verse 10, he rebukes the woman, why rebukes the disciples, why are you bothering the woman? They call this a waste. Why this waste? Jesus calls this very same thing, the thing they see as a waste, he calls it a beautiful thing. Missionary Henry Martin ministered in India in the early 19th century, arrived in the country of India in 1806. He'd been influenced uh, through the ministry of Anglican pastor uh, Charles Simeon, who related to him the story of William Carey. He'd also been heavily influenced by uh, the journal of David Brainerd. You may or may not know David Brainerd was uh, an early American missionary to Native Americans in New England. And so through the lives and stories of these men, He's drawn to missions. He arrives in India in 1806 saying, let me burn out for God. Martin, by any estimation, is brilliant. In six years, he completes three translations of the New Testament. So one in three different languages. His brilliance is coupled with a remarkable humility, a love for the scriptures. But sadly, Henry Martin's missionary career lasted only six years. He died prematurely from illness at the age of 31. He was traveling through Turkey, buried by strangers. A life cut short. Such brilliance. So is a life like this a waste of a life? No. A sacrifice like this in the pursuit of Christ is, in the words of Jesus, a beautiful thing. Now, Jesus is just a couple of days away from dying. He's not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. In fact, he's just made the point quite directly at the end of chapter five that we should, 25 that we should care for the poor. But there's a larger narrative going on here. Not only is this oil extremely valuable, it's also used for anointing for burial. So Jesus makes a curious statement in verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now, we don't know what Mary fully understands. She doesn't, we don't know if she understands that Jesus is about to die, but Jesus clearly does. His words at the, the beginning of verse 13 are used throughout Matthew's gospel to signal something important, to emphasize what he's saying. Truly, I say to you, he says. This, in other words, is the most important part of what he's saying here. And then in a most surprising turn, he speaks of the gospel or good news. So he talks about dying, about his burial, and then he calls it good news. Now, we've seen in recent days pictures 
videos of, of people watching loved ones die. Sometimes through a window, sometimes over a video call. I mean, death is tragic anytime, but in a day when people die in isolation, it's somehow darker, more depressing. Imagine kids and grandkids crowded around an iPad on a call with grandma in a hospital room. Grandma slowly dying alone. And someone saying, what good news this is. Death isn't good. Death isn't beautiful. The separation of death is a terrible thing. So how can this be good news? This can be good news only if this death isn't like any other death. This death must be different. And it is. Jesus is going to die. And in his death, he will die for sinners from every corner of the globe. And his death, it's not a mere symbol. It's a dying in place of sinners. And then resurrection in behalf of these sinners. Jesus will die, but he won't stay dead. This is the best news that anyone can hear. Death is coming for every one of us, whether it's the coronavirus or whether it's something else. Death will get us all, but there is a way through death. Jesus passed through death so that we might live forever. If you turn from your sin and trust the perfectly lived life, the sacrificial death, the conquering resurrection of Jesus, you need never fear death. You see, for those who know Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Well, Jesus' prediction is true today. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary's lavish act of worship is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, and being told here some 2,000 years later. We've had the plot, we've had worship, and now we move to this terrible moment of betrayal, or the plot for betrayal. Judas plans to betray Christ, verses 14 through 16. Judas, again, is at the center of the story. We don't know exactly how this went down, but it's not hard to imagine that he's been toying around with this idea for some time. What can he get for betraying Jesus? He doesn't believe in him anyway. He thinks he's a fraud, apparently, or just doesn't have faith. And what can he get out of this? Well, if Judas is a greedy, proud man, and he is, it's easy to imagine that the embarrassment of this moment pushes him over the edge. Jesus accepts the woman, rejects him in front of the disciples in this group. I mean, the way this plays out feels almost like a, a pouting child. Fine, I'm going to go take care of this. All four Gospels name Judas as the traitor. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also call him one of the twelve. This title highlights the terrible nature of what he's doing here. It's not a casual observer. It's, it's not a fringe kind of someone hanging on the edge. It's not, it's not a member of the Jewish establishment. It's one of Jesus's inner circle. And it's not like the chief priest hunted him down. Verse 14 tells us he goes to them. 
Judas is a greedy man. John has already told us that he uh, created the the uh, incident about the oil because he wanted the money. He wanted to use it himself. He was a thief. Matthew is the only gospel that records the amount of money, 30 pieces of silver. So first, let's, let's think about this. First, we got Judas complaining about the cost of the oil. And then he goes and he sells Jesus for cheap. I mean, Exodus 21 tells us that 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave who's accidentally killed by an ox. I mean, this sum of money is an insult. Judas is so fed up, he's so eager to betray Jesus that he sells cheap. Now, the situation, the dynamic is tricky. Because Jerusalem is full of worshipers, pilgrims from all over Israel. The chief priests have no interest in making a public scene during Passover week. So Judas looks for the right moment to betray Jesus. Verse 15, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So as we wrap this up, let's think about some of the people we've seen in this story for some important takeaways. Now, of course, all of us want to see ourselves in Mary, not in Judas. We want to see ourselves in the worshiper, not in the traitor. But then we've got the disciples, and they're consumed with, with picking at people who are doing things differently than they would, spending money differently rather than just sincerely worshiping Jesus. But the sad truth is, before we skip on from Jesus, there is some Judas in all of us. I mean, maybe not in the sense that we see ourselves in the position of, of literally selling Jesus out to authorities. But for those who know Jesus as Savior, every sin is a betrayal of our Savior. Every sin is an act of betrayal. It's a practical declaration that the sin we're pursuing, not Jesus, is the chief value in our life. I mean, we consider sin. We consider Jesus. We betray our Savior for the sin. And this isn't a struggle for a few of us. It's something that's common to all of us. We choose sin over Jesus. So how do we process this? Well, this is why we need Jesus in the first place. Jesus died for our sin. Or to follow this metaphor, he died for our betrayal. So confessing our sin proclaims our need of our Savior. Not just at the moment of salvation, but in an ongoing way, confession proclaims our need of Jesus. When we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9 tells us he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession is an important part of our lives personally as believers and of our life as a church. And at the end of the day, ultimately and most importantly, Christ's righteousness is our only hope. At the end of time, at the end of all things, we stand before the God of the universe. We have nothing else but Christ's perfectly lived life and his sacrificial death. It will be all we have. And friends, they will be more than enough. Jesus' blood and righteousness will be our beauty. Jesus' blood and righteousness will be our clothing. Jesus' blood and righteousness will be all we have to plead before the judge of the universe, and he will be enough. Jesus' blood enables us 
sinners, traitors in heart, to stand boldly unashamed before God's throne. So as God's children today, we run to Jesus over and over and over. When we sin, we confess our sin, confess our need of him and plead his blood in our behalf. And in the day when we faint and we feel we can't keep going, we hope in Christ. This Christ is not only our Savior, not only the sacrifice for our sin, but today he is our priest who stands before God's throne pleading our case. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate interceding for us. And if this is what Jesus has done and is doing for us, how? How in the world can we respond with anything less than a life of worship? So as we close, I'm going to close with this question. What does a life of worship look like for you? I don't mean what does it look like to attend a worship service. I mean, what does a life of devotion, of total devoted worship to Jesus look like for you today.